Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture, hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the offices of the law firm HBA, high above Bryant Park in the Garment District of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion law professor, fashion lawyer, and self-styled, well-dressed man. We have a treat for you today. Uh, for this episode, I'm joined by photographer, visual director, and writer, Dario Calmes. Dario, thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to be here, man. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I first met uh, when you were doing the photographs for the CFDA yeah. incubator program. That's uh, great. I was, uh, had the good fortune to be a mentor in that program. For a bit of time and uh you were taking profile shots um you're also uh a writer <laughs> for huffington post and uh, a couple of other publications daily beast um you're a staff photographer still for the cfda you have like seven jobs so <laughs> how do you self-describe it do you have like seven different business cards or do you have one business card that says Epic creator. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have one business card that just has my name on it and my website. Um, But I think I describe myself as, um, you know, an artist, writer, um, academic, and essentially just sitting at this nexus nexus between art, um, fashion, and academia. And those are really the three kind of areas that feed me and and feed my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I exist independently and at times um, combined with all of those three. Well, as a photographer, mm-hmm. you know, one of those components, um, you've built a career around showing the world what you see, you know, <laughs> through, through, through your eyes, through your lens. Um, what would you say uniquely describes your perspective on the world? Mm. I would say the through line of, of my work and that spills over into photography as well is just storytelling. Um, I have a background in theater. Um, so I actually started out as a performer. That's how I originally came to New York singing, dancing, acting. Um, And so that really fuels a lot of my work as well. So thinking about character, thinking about story, story storyline, through line. Um, And as a visual artist, really looking at details. Um, And I think that's the, you know, every medium has its, Um, strengths and weaknesses and I think for photography um, it's to be able to capture a moment um, because everything in life is moving Um, moments are fleeting Um, but photography has the ability to actually still and crystallize a moment and I think um, it's Roland Barthes who says that photography is a clock for seeing Um, and so not only do I think about you know, this moment, but like zeroing in on a moment. So I'm very much interested, and, and, and perhaps it has uh, a background in my mother being a seamstress and details, um, fabric, cloth, texture, but I'm very much interested in these very small moments that occur around us mm-hmm. and freezing those because we never really see those. Right. Or we never think about it. So h- how do you infuse your personality into the photographs? Is that something that you do through framing them, uh, through deciding when to pull the trigger and click, um, lighting? How do you accomplish that? Um, Actually, I can maybe divide it uh, into like my personal work and then my commercial work. Okay. Um, So my personal work, um, I'm really just interested in details. Um, I'm interested in fleeting moments that occur that only photography can capture. 
Um, and whether that be detail of skin, um, detail of a garment, the texture, um, those are the things that I'm interested in. And then also playing with scale. So if you ever see the work printed, usually I'm playing with scale as well. So these things that are very quotidian and very tiny um, have a larger than life presence when you encounter them. So then they actually become something else, but very much focused on form, line, shape. Um, when I'm doing my commercial work, I think my playfulness comes out a bit more. Um, my, my, my comic personality, I always say like, if we're not laughing on set, then it's not a good shoot. Um, and luckily I work with, um, clients that pretty much allow me to do what I want to do. Um, or I can at least convince them to <laughs> let me do what I want to do. Um, but really just playing that that's a much more theatrical, much more theatrical kind of setup. Um, but like heavily referenced in like my interests, which are history, um, performance, um, and, and at times social justice. So like even I will infuse like small elements. Um, for example, I did a shoot for um, Elizabeth Kennedy and we had she wanted to have all of these extras in the background. And so I set up all of these like micro scenarios in the background. Maybe you don't notice them when you look at the image because you're like looking at the dress. Like I make right. sure to make the dress the forefront, but there are all of these small things that are happening like with this white guy chasing this Asian girl and like finally like getting her or like this cougar like preying on this like black guy. Like this, but it's all <laughs> happening in these, in the images in the back, but nobody sees it. A panda bear yeah, like wrestling with a crazy. dragon. It's whack. <laughs> Like it's a whack, but it's but it's like one of the small inside jokes. Well, two other artists or photographers. I mean, um, I, I was looking at one of your more recent studies. It, it reminded me of Mabel Thorpe. Mm. Mabel Thorpe. Um, any any influences that you have either from other photographers or or artists? That tons, tons. Um, the Mabel Thorpe comparison is is interesting. I've gotten it a couple of times. Um, and I actually, I've seen Maplethorpe's work, but I'm not really looking at his work. Um, I'm not studying his work at all. Um, however, the subject matter is kind of similar, but I think people who really know photography, and this, I hope that doesn't sound elitist, um, can see that we're really not doing the same thing at all, not even in the way we shoot. Um, I just think when people think about the body or abstract nude or something like that, they just kind Never of go to Maplethorpe. And, and in a way, actually, um, my work could serve actually as a buttress or an antithesis to Maplethorpe's artistic practice because his was much more about objectification and specifically the objectification of black men and black men's bodies um, and the exotification of that body and the fetishizing of that body and mine is actually a buttress against that which is a big reason why i actually rarely show frontal nudity why you don't see the face at all so you actually really are not even sure what you're looking at you're just you just know that it's human and usually my subject matter are black men and so it's a way to reframe the black body in a place that's abstract but just reduced to humanity and beauty which i think are two things that we rarely or that we as an American culture are challenged to map onto the black body because there's so many other things that are mapped on, but just humanity and beauty are rarely yeah. put on. Well, so you've obviously done a lot of commercial work for fashion brands. Um, how has that informed your personal work? Or, you know, you sort of created a bifurcation as you described what you do um, with my first question. But... How is there similarity? Does one inform the other, or do you view them as sort of, I wear the hat forwards, and then when I turn it backwards, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing my fashion gig? Um, you know, I, I do see them as separate. Um, and one, because one is really what I want to do, and the other is, as you know, um, in service of another brand. So... Um, so there are things that I have to consider and for me, I, and I love them both actually. It's not like I 
you know, hate to do commercial work and this is all I really want to be doing. I love the opportunity to have like an expanded vision to collaborate with the designer to really dig deep into the ethos of their brand and offer something that feels like uniquely them, mm -hmm. um, but also allows them to to grow or get into the places that they want to be. And that's something that's also very important to me is to speak with brands and ask them, where do you want to be? Like, where are you and where do you want to be? And how can I help you get there? And that's something that I've been able to do um, multiple times with multiple brands. And I think with some success, which is great. Um, What's your process for that? Is that sitting down with the creative heads yep. or the one creative director and really having a meaningful conversation? Absolutely. Do you... Do you due diligence before that about the brand or are you, I mean, you're an astute both consumer as well <laughs> as just fan of brands. So you know most of them, but is there a process that you go through before a commercial job I, that is somewhat I, oh, rote? Um, perhaps not like formulaic, well, but form I do. I, I, I don't I, mean to, to, to suggest you're overly formalizing it, but you know, because each, each brand is, is different. And as you dig right. into it, you're going to have a different reaction and, and a different no, but I approach it. I approach it like a, like, like an academic, like as a scholar, yeah. as a research project. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a skill that I learned, um, with public school. Right. right. So you were with public school as what, what was your title? You were visual director. Right. So I started as a photographer. Um, I was in grad school. I came in as a photographer and I just so happened to come into the brand right when they were showing for the first time in February of 2012. Mm -hmm. um, how I ended up in a production meeting, I have no idea. How I ended up speaking in the production meeting, I have no idea. Um, but I think the guys quickly realized that I was more than just a photographer. And so then I helped them with casting that show. Okay. And then after I graduated, Dow called me and he's like, I don't know where you are because <laughs> I, I, was, I was actually in Asia. And he's like, but we have work for you to do, so let's get to work. Um, and so then I just took over much more responsibility because the brand was very small at the time. It was Dow, Max, um, a guy for production, and pretty much me. And then a guy came in to do denim later. Um, so I learned a lot. But when I so met that was with, that was back when they were menswear only. Exactly. Yeah. And um, but it was a really great lesson because when I met with Max and I met with Dow, they had all of these references and all of these names that I never heard of. And I was like, I don't know what these guys London Teddy Boy. I was like, what are these guys talking about? I have no idea. Um, and so I was a bit nervous, but I was like, but I know I can learn this. Like, I know I'm just going to study. I'm just going to take, and it happened right before Christmas break. So I went home and I just researched, 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 researched. And I knew that I got it when I went to, I was in a museum while I was home in St. Louis and I saw this painting and I texted Dow the painting and I was like, I don't know, but there's something about this that feels right. And Dow was like, yo, that's it. And that's when I knew that I, that's when I knew that I got it. Yeah. Um, and what I learned was that, you know, all brands and not only brands, but companies, municipalities, countries have a language. They have a design language. They have a visual language. And just like Spanish, French, Italian, you can learn it. Like if you study like what those visual vowels and consonants and things are, you can actually dig right in. And for me, then offer something that feels very unique, but it is about that deep dive. And so that's something that I do with brands and companies that I work with. I ask them, you know, what are, what are the movies that you love? What books are you reading? What was the last art gallery show that you went to that you loved outside of whatever it is that they actually produce? Right. Um, and and yeah, so it's it's that's maybe the way that I work with brands is that I just do a deep dive into who they are mm -hmm. and what they're interested in. Um, outside of actually maybe the thing that they produce. Are there any brands today, maybe specific to menswear, um, mm. that you feel are are doing it extremely right? And I'm not talking on a commercial level. Now I'm, I'm speaking really purely aesthetically. Hmm. Hmm. Pregnant pause. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I, to no be stress. honest, I'm not. I'm not really sure because um, I am usually when I'm working with fashion and fashion week, I'm just like 
working with the brand that I'm into and right. not really looking left or right. Right. Um, I think maybe recently, you know, what Virgil did for Louis Vuitton was great. Um, I think... Oh, do you know? Actually, actually, I just discovered this brand, Filson. Filson, yeah. I'd never heard of them. They've been actually, around for a they, while. Oh, That's yeah, a legacy oh, like a long brand. Time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I was at the Philip Lim store, and I walked past this right store, and I was like, door, oh, this right? looks cool. What, yeah. what is this? And I went in, and I was like, okay, Americana. Okay, it's like Carhartt meets Woolrich meets Barber. Okay. Um, but what I liked about the brand was that it was actually one it was very authentic two it was very well made and for me i was actually just having this conversation with a friend yesterday um me personally i'm really into clothes that work so fashion is great but if the coat actually doesn't keep you warm or the shoes actually don't protect you like the boots don't protect you in the snow in New York winter. Like, I'm not going to buy it. Um, it may look great, but I, me personally, those aren't the things that I'm interested in. And Filson has a way of creating workwear, kind of everyday wear for men that's, like, just quite fashionable. Like, the cuts are just yeah. right to not make you look like a fashion victim, but, like, that you cared but you don't have to think much about it. But And they actually work. And it works. Because I also work in the studio. I'm in the studio every day, yeah. which is, you know, dusty and all of these things. And so the actual utility of clothing and the, my ability to wear them and maybe sully them and not look crazy yeah. is something that's actually very important to me. And um, the physicality of your job. I mean, I've, I've worked with photographers, shot with photographers. Yeah. And, you know, you guys are... Climbing in, cranes, exactly. going down into pits, like all yeah. of these things. Yeah. So yeah. there, there is a, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a real necessity for those clothes to respond. Absolutely. Um, and last. Um, well, let's flip to a question I often ask last, but um, since we're talking about, you know, brands that you love, I always like to cover, you know, the sort of who, what, why, where, when mm -hmm. of what my guest is wearing. So... Starting with, and I know you recently visited the Philip Lim store, and you you have a, a lovely <laughs> Philip Lim jumper on. Um, I feel like I might be an ad for Philip Lim. <laughs> <laughs> but who are you wearing? Well, let's let's start with what are you wearing today? Um, and this is really for our viewers who aren't watching on YouTube and are just uh, oh, listening right. on iTunes. Um, so I'm wearing um, a Heather Gray oversized knit sweater um, with long sleeves. I love how Philip plays with proportion like that, particularly a, a, a man's proportion. So, yes, the, the, the sweater. Um, I'm wearing a pair of denim trousers, um, blue, blue denim trousers, cuffed, uh, a pair of black leather lace-up boots, um, and underneath it all is a layer of Uniqlo Heat Tech. Oh, and a black... The lid baseball cap as Saint i can Louis. see your hometown yes my hometown excellent Rapping. okay so so who we we know the jumper is philip Lim. um to the extent you know which brands um, are you wearing i don't know the name of the hat but i, I think it's the the cardinal company okay. like st louis cardinals it's I'll, I'll back up and get to your accessories by the way because okay. your earrings we forgot about which they're gorgeous oh thank but you we'll, we'll get to accessories last um so I think it's from the St. Louis Cardinals organization. Okay. Okay. Um, so it's New Era or one of the one of the maybe. licensees. I but thought it I, might be Todd Snyder because I know he oh, did a recent. No. Yeah. Yeah. It, they literally have a shop in the mall in St. Louis okay. that just sells yep. St. Louis Cardinal paraphernalia. So it might uh, be New Era. No, 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 no. It's it's interesting little factoid. If you buy specifically from the team store, mm -hmm. uh, then the 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 team doesn't have to share overall royalties with the other teams as opposed to buying off of a purveyor that's more okay. generalized. So when you buy from a team store... It really you know, the goes team, right to them. Yeah, think okay. about it as a contribution to your team. Or and more of a contribution crazy, to your team. Like crazy Cardinals fans. <laughs> My parents are too. Um, sweater is Philip Lim. The jeans are actually also Uniqlo. Okay. Um, the boots are also Philip Lim. Oh, wow. Um, and those lace-up 
yeah, almost mid calf. Wow. Yeah. Those are great. Those are lovely. But it's like a very like just New York, you know. Like yeah. New York is a city that I, I think also forces you to buy functional clothes. I think New York yeah. will prove how cheap your shoes are. You know, <laughs> if you skimp on yeah. your shoes, like New York will show you exactly how how much good shoes well as a, as, a, as a guy born in los angeles you know not a four season city mm-hmm. um and not a walking mm-hmm. city mm-hmm. um you know i i often uh, believe that one of the reasons i was drawn to new york was was the ability you know to not only wear good shoes but but you know the seasonality of clothing i i you know was sort of the kid who would be wearing what you're wearing you know on a november day in laguna beach california sweating and, and just be sweating but, <laughs> um but so how about the when? And by oh, the when, the, the, yeah, the, so the earrings. The earrings are actually um, a peace treaty. You okay, know, Dana, yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, incubator. An incubator designer. Yeah. yeah. They're lovely. And, and are they anything specific or are they just a... Oh, um, sterling silver? Like the material? No, or? I more meant the, 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 the figure. Um, I, to just be honest, shape. I'm not sure, but um, a peace treaty, their whole, you know, kind of brand ethos or concept is that they work with local artisans from around the world right and they do a lot of work in um in india and mm-hmm. then also like in south america Colombia. and so this is actually a pattern that's repeated in a lot of mesoamerican um carvings okay but then also crosses over into um kind of indian artwork as well so like even when i was in mexico people were yeah. like oh my god your earrings like da-da-da. yeah yeah and then uh, on to the when question when, um so the seasonality of, of current these items. season philip Lim. yeah um the hat seasonless seasonless yeah right the denim, but new seasonless um the, but this is actually new from uniqlo so i was okay. there buying heat tech yeah um and i saw these these trousers and i was like oh i never really wear color like outside of black and gray and i tried them on and they fit you know perfectly and they have just like a little bit of elastic so again just kind of the ease of movement um and these boots i got these actually at a philip limb sample sale which makes me think that they are all 17. well bravo on that because most of my guests can't name a single season a single (laughs) item um, including guests I've had that are buyers for large retailers. Oh, and my been. watch. Ah. Um, so my watch is um, a Swedish brand, TID. Okay, um, right. And it's a limited edition that they did with the design company. So they made like 500 of them. But they have this beautiful white-on-white face and black. Yeah, that's so stunning. it's like simplicity. But so I noticed that, um, like me, and in adherence with yeah. one of the laws of style, um, you have a matching watch band to the leather on your boots to to your cap. Um, is that something that you feel strongly about matching, you know, belt leather, watch band leather, shoes, or is black a default for you for a lot of accessory item? It's a default for me just because I pretty much wear the same thing every day. Um, but yes, I also had a mother who instilled in me very early that your belt always had to match your shoes. That's number one. So, so yes. well, and one of the things I sometimes struggle with is if I'm wearing a watch that has a different color band, which, you know, mom didn't talk about watch bands and shoes, <laughs> at least not in my house. Um, you know, for me, it's always important to have some bridge. You Ooh. know, if the shoes are two-tone, perhaps. Right, or right, if right, I can right. maybe get a two-tone belt, which kind of bridges those leathers, mm. then I feel comfortable and therefore confident. And, and you know, I'm exuding the style that I can exude. I try to have, like, one of each thing. I actually don't have multiple, like, the idea of multiple, like, watches. Or maybe when I was younger... Um, but because I travel so much, um, I just like to my things like streamline and simplify, like one watch until that thing falls off, yeah, and then move on to the next, or if or until I lose it, which is also likely, <laughs> just as likely. Well, so pivoting a little bit, you've you've written about the invisible men and women of black fashion. Mm-hmm. It was a great article. 
Thank you. Um, you. You noted, for instance, that only 1% of the brands at the time that you wrote the article listed in Vogue were by black designers. Mm -hmm. um, you lamented the omission of Anne Lowe's name in conversations about Jackie O's wedding mm -hmm. dress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think things are getting better? I do think things are getting better. Um, I think, you know, and I, and I spoke to a friend of mine about this who's, um, who is a fashion studies major, major at Parsons, but um, speaking about the role that Black Lives Matter had um, in culture in general, um, I believe that through this you know, kind of activism and awareness, it actually spilled over into many industries. Um, and there were just a lot of conversations about inclusion and in many spaces where perhaps the people themselves were not prejudiced or racist or anything like that, but just because, you know, they never had to wonder or think about, do we have enough diversity here? Just mm -hmm. because, you know, the privileges that they've had, you know, being white. Um, all of a sudden we're like, oh, there are no black people here. Or we don't have any women here. Or, we don't have any you know, Asians. Here. Like we need to have these voices. And um, the more I travel, the more I realize that America's, one of its greatest assets is actually its diversity. It's the thing that actually keeps it churning. It's yeah. the thing that, it's, it's, it's the fuel that it's keeps the most American toward, thing about America. Yeah. Moving more towards this perfect union because you always have a group who is pushing for their voice, which forces us to have another conversation, which so it can go from, you know, Occupy Wall Street, you know, into Black Lives Matter, into like the Me Too movement. So um, anyway, I say all that to say that I do think that it's better. I don't think that it's reached um, the kind of level of diversity that we need to have. I think... Um, you know, having, you know, images um, where we see more models of color, I think that's great. Um, but in places of decision making, it still very much right. looks the same. And that's and that's how brands get tripped up. Um, they do not have those voices at the table with them um, to maybe think about having this guy in this shirt that says monkey, you know, the coolest monkey in the jungle is that we might want to rethink that, right. right? But because because of, you know, I don't want to say their privilege, but just really just the way that you grow up in the world, you're just you're just never thinking about that because you've never had to. I also think we're at a moment where what the general public sees, the consuming public mm -hmm. is a rise of you know the the Virgil blows mm -hmm. the the Kirby Jean Ramon mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. you, you've got you've got Heron Preston Johnson you've got you've got these people who are achieving a level of recognition mm -hmm. but they're the designers mm -hmm. they're not the buyers they're right. not necessarily so so there is an entire infrastructure to the fashion a industry which is a system yeah. um, and. You would posit, I think, probably correctly that that there hasn't been as significant a shift. And I'm I'm just naming names. I mean, right. these are these are guys who we now know of. Uh, I'm not listing numbers because I can't, you know, brands. You know. <laughs> but um, do you think that that that's really a kernel of the issue that that systemically we haven't seen a a balance within the system? Yes, um, that I would say, um, and I, I, I think you can look at the executive boards of every fashion house that I don't know grosses more than a million dollars, and it would look even less diverse mm -hmm. than one percent. Yeah, yeah. So, the rise of, and for those not watching, I'm throwing air quotes up here: streetwear. Right uh -huh. or urban wear. Uh -huh. um, you know, Kirby famously said, "I just want to understand what's being called street. Right. My clothes or me. Right. Um, Very important. 
Is that troubling? Is that, you know, I hear street and I think a lot of things, you know, street style photography, for instance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, has nothing to do with race. It has to do with people trying to get photographed by, you know, by, mm-hmm. the, <laughs> by, paparazzi. That group of, by the paparazzi. <laughs> but um, do you think that those labels diminish the accomplishments of these designers? Or do you think that they are just categorizing and that it's not... Um, it's not a troubling development that that urban and street seem to have been somewhat appropriated to put a label on on black designers. Well, I think that streetwear, I, if we're just going to use this terminology, yeah. I think streetwear as a term has developed. Um, I think, like thinking back, public school days, right? You know, public school was called streetwear. And that was something that Dow and I had uh, a conversation about. And by the way, for our listeners, I mean, I have a gray flannel public school suit that yeah. I have worn into boardrooms, that I have worn at M&A closings, and doesn't look like I should be on a skateboard or on the subway in it. You know, I look perfectly appropriate as a lawyer wearing it. And so this is the thing, that because... You know, Max is black, Dow is Asian, both from New York. They just labeled the brand streetwear mm-hmm. because of what the designers looked like, not because of what they were designing. And at the time, they were making tux jackets, um, double-breasted suits, like really beautiful tailored suiting, jackets, coats, um, and even like a motorcycle jacket um, that they were really known for in the, in the mm-hmm. beginning. And this isn't streetwear, um, but they were labeled streetwear. So... There's, you know, the early, there's, the, you know, the 2012 version of streetwear or what people wanted uh, streetwear to be labeled. And I think now in 2019, there is, um, you know, there exists, you know, an off-white and then there's Supreme and, you know, even Visvim. And so streetwear mm-hmm. has taken on, you know, a luxe, uh, a luxe patina and it's also something that even older houses are trying to dip into, you know, certain collections that Karl Lagerfeld does for Chanel or um, name, name any brand. They've all, they've all dipped into it. Um, you know, even now at Balenciaga, um, there is this notion that this is what we need. We need to, you know, have access to this. Um, and that can also be troubling in a way, and that's maybe a larger conversation too about, um, and I don't want to say necessarily call it appropriation because that's also a very um, loaded and triggering word, but just that, like a brand like you know Balenciaga is obviously um, referencing and pulling from like 90s hip hop culture mm-hmm. and the ability for this designer to capitalize and um, succeed um, off of the fashioning and the stylings of, of disenfranchised people from the 90s can be also a bit problematic, but that's... that's well, I mean, so on that subject, um, Gucci and its homage to Dapper Dam that oh, went uh, I, yeah. unattributed. I wrote about that. I know you did. Um, <laughs> You know, the, the Gucci seems to have rebounded from that. Not yeah, not that not that they culpa. took any economic hit, but um, you know, I mean, I think from Gucci's perspective, it might have been a subtle irony, and that they would point to well, Dapper Dan, you know, was appropriating our trademark at the time. Um, but at least, you know, I, I think maybe your response would be, but he was certainly recognizing Gucci in that appropriation, whereas you know, during that show, before that show, after that show. There was no actual yeah. reference no. Uh, until it was pointed out by people such as yourself. Right. Um, what do you think about about Virgil's ascension mm. uh, up, you know, to Louis Vuitton and and how that will uh, potentially uh, affect things? Well, I want to actually, I actually want to pull back, back okay. just really back up really quickly to the Dapper Dan thing because even even Dapper Dan screen printing. Gucci and other luxury houses onto leather needs a bit of context because Dapper Dan actually tried to sell 
and they, wouldn't, to they sell, wouldn't sell and they to wouldn't, him. They wouldn't let him sell it. So he actually tried to sell these brands, and yeah. they wouldn't. They refused. And so he was like, I'll just make it myself. Like, And he figured out a way to make it. So he actually did try to go through the proper channels to actually get it done and was just forced to do it and ended up you know, creating something completely new and completely different. Um, and he wasn't necessarily copying. He was just using the idea of luxury right. to kind of create this this hip-hop world of the 90s. Um, Virgil, I, I don't want to sound like um, a dick. I don't think about Virgil too much, but I do admire the lane that he's carved out for himself, and I think that he's a model to think about creativity moving forward. I think we are easing out of an era of the specialists. I think, um, well, one, I just think human beings and creatives are multifaceted beings, period. Um, but Virgil is also a slasher, right? So he's a designer slash DJ slash, like, because I think he was like a creative director for Kanye. So yep. I guess slash creative producer um he's like has a furniture line with ikea um and so i think just thinking about creativity um and execution i think he's a really great model to just explore your curiosity um and i think that's where we're moving towards mm -hmm. um that people are doing multiple things um as far as his design aesthetic I mean, is this what do you want me to talk about this as well? Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, and I looked at I looked at the show at Louis Vuitton. I think it's great. You know, visuals are always great. It's always good to have someone that looks like you doing something that you may want to do because when they aren't there, there's a subconscious or unconscious message that this is not for you or that you can't make it here. Right. So just his visibility, I think, is great. I think his hype is great. Um, the brand off white i think it's good i find that it can be a bit derivative um and someone who knows fashion history can really see where virgil's pulling from and i think virgil at times also can be found um or his his um his notation of where he pulls from can be found wanting um, just like other brands who pull from other designers or other cultures, um, their their recognition of that can be found wanting as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think anyone who knows fashion history and looks at a an off-white um, collection can clearly see where Virgil's pulling from. However, he's dealing with an audience and a streetwear, streetwear young generation Y, Maybe are we Generation Z or is Generation Z? Maybe we're Generation Z um, <laughs> audience who does not know like who Margiela is, right, right, and they're like, oh my God, Virgil's like, ah, da, da, da. And, and I'm I'm like, this is Margiela, he's like just copy Margiela. So. Well, and look in the context of apparel in particular, I, I mean, you virtually cannot but pull from someone, absolutely, right, absolutely. So, Every designer is standing on the shoulders of, of their predecessors. Right. Um, in a way, it's about timing, right? It's about you're pulling from various reference sources, but you're doing it at a moment. Mm -hmm. It's within a context mm -hmm. that fits your brand story, and you articulate it well. Yeah. It's, um, like, a, it's like a musical revival. Yeah. We were talking but, about musicals. <laughs> right. But it's best to attribute appropriately at both... I think speaks highly of the designer that they know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, yeah, exactly. of the creative process that they that they actually give credit where where it it may be due. Right. Or or at least delineate far enough that we can see that you're like reintroducing it into in a in a new context. Right. Because really, one never knows, you know, where where things truly originated. Right. It right. could be with some artisan down in Peru yeah. or Spain or, you know, that, that, that will remain unnamed um, and, you know, unaccoladed. Um, in, in the laws of style, mm -hmm. um, I quote you. Mm. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, don't know if you knew that. You're in the index. But, you know, I talk about an old guard at uh, white-collar institutions mm -hmm. like where I used to work in a big law firm. Um, and they cling to certain patriarchal vestiges of, of authority and power. Things like, 
the contrast collar dress shirt used to be called the partner shirt. Mm. Um, I think still is suspenders mm. with, with critters on them or, or sort of wild stripes, um, three piece suits, like actually what I'm in today, but Hey, I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you but, have, you have, uh, <laughs> you said, and I'm just going to read the quote here, lest I get it wrong in a racialized patriarchal and misogynist America, mm -hmm. masculinity, or at least a convincing masculine performance, mm -hmm. is a prized possession. Mm -hmm. Highly gendered items like suiting, and I'm paraphrasing there, you list off a few, uh, serve as visual and cultural shorthand to imitate and reinforce male prowess, which I think was, was just a, a great articulation of the point I was trying to make in the book. So, you know, we violently agree. There, there are certain items of dress that are charged with legacy mm -hmm. and entitlement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are some, so I've listed those off, at least for me and in my experience. What, what are some of those, those items for you? Mm, I think it really depends on the context, okay. right? Um, I think it depends on the culture in which you find yourself. I find that when I'm in Paris, I dress differently than I do when I'm in New York. Um, when I was in Turkmenistan, I dressed very differently than I did when I was in Mexico City. Right. Um, there are just certain things you're able to get away with. Um, uh, for example, in Turkmenistan, so, so I also have this really fabulous like public school cape. Uh, I don't know if you remember when they made this like... I wanted that wool, cape. Like, cape. I wanted lit. that cape so badly. Baby, I got that cape. <sighs> And I can only because capes, capes. Uh, I am prognosticating the comeback, the return of the cape. FDR, like his it's cape a great style garment. was sickening. <laughs> and I'm talking, and he was like Dracula floor length cape, yeah, like with the lined um, cape. Anyway, yeah, I so, remember this cape. But the public school cape, I can only wear it on like Halloween in New York because people are going to look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> but in Turkmenistan, a culture where kind of costume and elegance is really appreciated. Like I really, I just, I literally wore the cape mm -hmm. like around, um, in New York. I mean like, you know, like the baseball cap, like mm -hmm. that's just like a clean, like urban look black on black, super chic. It works. It fits within these masculine paradigms, but even, even this elongated sweater is can kind of push it for New York and American mm -hmm. fashion, right? Because it kind of could look like a dress and it's like a little too long. But then you go to Africa and, you know, men wear nothing but like long flowing right. robes and Tunics skirts. And, and, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So and I, Mexico City. I mean, that, that shirt, I'm forgetting the name of it, but that sort of long meant to be the, the original untucked shirt mm. or untuck it. <laughs> it's meant to be worn long and is loose and, and only buttons to you know, sort yeah. of like two, three button profile. So I think it really depends uh, on the cultural context, you know, you find yourself in. Um, and I think it also then takes a level of confidence or self-assuredness to maybe push some of those boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, I think some people exist in a mental framework where they cannot help but fully be themselves despite the way that people look at them, despite the way... Um, that they are perceived. And then there are some who are cognizant enough, like yours truly, who, who understand the, the codes but can eke it just enough to not just completely blend in because what's more boring than like right. looking like everyone else? Are there items for you, um, to, to maybe refine the question a little bit, that you think can gain the wearer access to the proverbial smoke-filled room. You know, the, 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 the Rolex Daytona, the, mm. you know, are there, does fashion okay. provide a point of access? Absolutely. And so what Absolutely. are, what are some of those items for you? If, um, if not the suit, which, you know, maybe right. one of them certainly. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, I used to have a lot of suits, um, Actually, I had a lot custom made when I was abroad, and then I bought a bunch of actually old Lucio Castro okay, suits. Yeah. I mean, beautiful, like thick wool, beautiful suits that I ended up giving away because I just never wear them. I mean, went to tailors, did all the work, and I was just like, I don't need these. Um, so I gave them away. Um, 
but I think, I mean, it, again, it depends on the world in which you live, but um, I think just being in the New York fashion set, like a pair of black leather lace-up boots, um, I think for me, working in fashion, I find that it's always good to have a conversation piece, right, to spark a conversation, even if it's just like the earring that I wear or maybe the watch or maybe the shoe or maybe it's the sweater or maybe it's the kerchief or maybe it's the tie, but an access point because, you know, as adults, you know, it's harder to make friends, but if people have an entry point into you, right? if you can, even if it's the the glasses you wear, like you're wearing this like weird kind of funky tortoiseshell thing. Um, Thank you. It's... <laughs> It's not weird, actually. Talk it's to nice. me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an access point. And I yeah. think that one fashion can serve as an identifier and, and a tribe, right? So it's it one says, like, I'm a part of this group of people. Um, but then it can also, again, like I said, be a conversation starter. Like, you're wearing this rope bracelet that is kind of... Um, Incongruous. Yes, a bit of an outlier to the rest of it. And so I'm going to, you know, I want to know, oh, oh, that's interesting. What's that? And and the story behind it is appropriately interesting and, and, you know, maybe a little sappy. But um, one, (laughs) I I do truly feel that, you know, to to be stylish, it's important to sort of at least have one item that doesn't match. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Because you you don't want to look too considered. Yeah, you know, unless you're in your tuxedo. But even when you're in your tuxedo, maybe particularly when you're in your your tuxedo. Exactly. Um, And I'm not one that wears jewelry every day other than a watch. Um, But this is a a bracelet from Mexico that my son actually made Mm. down in Mexico. Local artisans, um, you know, would, would come to the place that we were staying and they would teach the kids how to make bracelets. And he made the bracelet, so it's 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 a dear object to me, both because the trip was a lovely one, and you know the hand that made it was both an artisan's and, and no pun intended, precisely. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> but also, but what it says, right? Just reading it is that obviously you you know you're considered in the way that you dress, but you don't take yourself too seriously, and right. so you know for me that's like an access point, right? It's it's yeah. all communication. It's a visual level of communication. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, well, so you've said in the past that you approach photography as, as theater. There mm-hmm. was a, there was a story to it, uh, or a storyline, you know, and the stage on which humans play out their roles, scenes, lives, this seems to be applicable to fashion as well, Absolutely. right? To, to, to brand, you know, so what, what is your take on the theatrical elements of fashion? Um, you know, be it runway, cosplay, everyday dressing, Etc. Um, I mean, from the runway, I mean, that's really how I approach the shows that I do with Pierre Moss. Um, and I think perhaps why it's been successful or they, the shows have been successful is because of one, my background in theater, my also in psychology, my undergrad degrees in psychology. So just understanding the human condition and the ways in which we, um, emote and connect Mm -hmm. um to things i think for me the runway is totally um is totally theater and for me should be theater i I want it to be something that people actually want especially especially today with physically come the death of the runway not the death but you know it's it's becoming a rarer thing i think it just needs you know i like 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 many things like the radio like the television like the internet I just think it just needs to be recontextualized and maybe rethought, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the role of the runway show? Because I do think that runway shows are very important. I just think that people... Um, I just think, again, those rooms, those those boardrooms look like the boardrooms have always looked. And so right. when there's a need to shift, it doesn't happen. And so it just ends up being the same old shit yeah. that you know that you've always looks, seen walk down a, a you know uh, down a runway to you know a mix of house music and techno and uh, boom people sit people leave the pr company gets paid and who and yeah. and who cares right i can yeah. just sit and look at style.com and just look at the looks um but you know fashion is is costume i think we're all um 
trying to become I think we're all in the process of becoming who we think we should be and I think that fashion um, or clothing or the garment or the fashion object can serve as an extension of that or an access point into that place in which we want to be or the ways in which we want to present um, and I was talking um, I was I'm actually working on a, an article about um, transgender you know, individuals mm -hmm. and the ways in which um, the garment or the fashion object serves for them as like the first indicator of who they are, mm -hmm. despite what what the surface level is, despite the skin. So that space between the body and the garment and how how large is that space? How large is that distance? Um, and the ways in, again, in which the, the garment can serve as indicator who we want to be versus maybe who we are like at the core. Yeah. Um, and so I think, again, this is, this is fashion. These are clothes. Bringing, bringing that comment to commercial terms. I mean, I, I am seeing more and more brand propositions that are, that are truly unisex, mm. um, which do have a struggle at retail because as you know the system is set up with men's buyers and women's buyers and you know there's not a unisex buyer at mm. Saks Fifth Avenue or right, Nordstrom's right, or right um and you know there aren't really there aren't floors you go to Barney's you you know where the women's side is and the men's side and you know not sure where that would sit mm -hmm. um do you think that that a unisex brand proposition or apparel proposition, you know, has, has legs. Do you think it's maybe capitalizing on a moment that, um, will be a moment and not a lasting one? I mean, there are several brands that have tried to do, uh, unisex clothing. I mean, even in the seventies and the sixties. Um, and I think it's a bit tough um, because you also have to deal with the culture in which you find yourself. And I remember when I was working retail at the Gap, when I was in when when the Gap was actually a thing, and I was in college, and there would be guy, you know, and it was a, not that the store was mixed, but there were sides, right? Mm -hmm. And there would be a guy that would wander into the women's section, and would like love like a belt. He's like, oh man, I love this belt, da 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 da, da. and. Um, and then he'd find out that it was in the women's section, and then he'd put it back. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, but once it's off the rack, one, no one knows, and two, if you like it, so why not wear it? Yeah. But you also have to deal with this mentality. And although you may be able to design things that you know are unisex, you still have to deal with the customer and the culture in which they find themselves. So I think um, as, as great as the proposition could be, um, I think it's a bit difficult, but perhaps there's a way to just maybe carry it on both sides of the store, right? Yeah. You make this oversized jacket, right? That can be, you know, you have size one, two, three, and four. You have it in the women's section and you have it in the men's section. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting. I mean, at, at our mutual friend Phillips store, I found myself drawn to a pair of military pants that were on the women's side, but so oversized that, um, that they could maybe work. Yeah. And they did. I got <laughs> ah. a size. I got a, I found out I'm a size eight. Ooh, nice. Yeah. I'm a big girl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I'm a size six. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, let's see. So, but, uh, but I think that, but that, that's one that speaks to, to the level of self, actualization and conversations that you've had with yourself right to be able to even think that this is possible and to just not completely poo-poo it off but you are in the minority now if men in america had more of this sensibility then yes a unisex line could completely work because there's so many th i mean differences between men and women i mean i mean i can't go where Leger dress but right. there are certain items that do cross over and can totally fit Absolutely. Uh, either but you again you also have to deal with this mentality but and for anyway. years i have found myself purchasing you know uh, scarves that are in the women's section mm -hmm. or you know sometimes just 
accessories in yep. particular, which, which makes sense for both men and women. Um, so, you know, we're both, we're both workers in the fashion industry. Yeah. Right. Um, and often from the outside, you know, so me as a lawyer, you as a photographer, visual creator, um, most people think it's extremely glamorous and mm-hmm. I don't want that to be leading, but, um, do, do you agree with that notion? And what are moments of, of outright glamour that you've had on the job? And then what are moments of complete and total drudgery as if you were in the salt mines have you had? <laughs> um, I think it is highly glamorous. No, I'm kidding. Um, there, I guess there are moments of glamour when you, when you look back, right, at the work. Because when you're in the trenches, it's just the trenches. Um, and you know they're screaming and the yelling. The are flying. And, body parts are. Yeah, yeah, and then you look back at the finished product, and you're like, "Wow, that was gorgeous!" Like, um, actually, for example, this is a perfect example. The last show I did with Kirby at Weeksville in Brooklyn, it was slightly raining, and we literally, literally, for a month, watched the weather every day, every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. Is it gonna rain? Is it not gonna rain? And it said that one, it's not going to rain. Like, I mean, we, like, we're so sure. And then, right, and so it was like, and it was just like a slight drizzle. And I was just like, okay, you know, okay, whatever. It's an outdoor show. Um, but, you know, people were standing in line outside. Now, mind you, like, you know, I'm directing the show, getting the choir together, like, timing things on the runway, all of this. But the, the decking is wet. And they're trying to open the doors. Hey, and 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 Weeksville is such a huge complex right. that you can't like headsets not working. Like and, I can't. And people and so aren't I wearing just Ugg went boots and found the janitor. Boots, uh, hunter just, boots or anything, any yeah. footwear that that would be appropriate for wet decking. I just went and found the janitor. I was like, I need ten mops like right now, and I just went out and just started mopping all the decks. And I gave some other people some mops, and they were doing a shitty job, and I had to go over and, like, remop their sections. I got someone with paper towels. We're wiping off the seeds. And, yes, like, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but at the end of the day, the job has to get done. And the last thing we need is for someone to slip and fall, you know, coming to the show. And so, yeah, I'm, like, (laughs) mopping decks, like, right before the show. But when I saw the video, because, again, I was in it, I didn't see it, and it... I had to stop after 30 seconds because I was it was so gorgeous. Like just the light drizzle of rain right. and like the choir and the girl walking holding like her little son. I, I, it was just, it's visually stunning. And that was like a true moment of glamour, planned and unplanned. Um, and so like, you know, mopping the decks, like literally right. actually was worth it. And did you find, you know, was Kirby a appreciative client in that regard? I, I have always found that in the industry, our services are very, very appreciated. Absolutely. In, in a way that, in, a way that um, in other industries, I just don't find it present. The creative mind maybe doesn't align so much with what I do. Mm. And therefore, when the legal work gets done and it gets, gets done tightly, it's almost as if a magical act has been performed. <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean, for sure. I mean, Kirby and I are also friends, you know. Um, that helps. And, yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. Or maybe we've become friends in the process, which is also good. But, no, totally appreciative. I think it's such a collaborative effort um, that one can't but be, well, I hope, you know, that one is grateful or one is, like, like thankful that, you know, your vision is actualized in a way that you could have never imagined. And, and that takes teamwork, you know, and, yeah. the, and, the, and, and, the, and that also comes from Kirby too, um, finding the right team, like, and, and holding on to them. And, you know, he's a supreme loyalist, um, at sometimes to a fault. Um, but we've just built this really great tight team and we're able to execute and have conversations. And, uh, you know, I'm able to speak for Kirby without Kirby, without Kirby being there. Like that's, yeah. that's where we are. I'm like, Kirby, go do the clothes. I got this. Like I got it. I know exactly what it'll say. So on a legal note, you mm. photographed Machine Gun Kelly. 
mm. for a limited edition T-shirt. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, but the photograph ended up being used kind of all over the planet. Right. Um, no attribution given in many cases to you. Right. Um, that's your copyright being appropriated. What What are your views on how the legal system works for you as a creator? as a photographer or doesn't work for you in terms of your ability to enforce your rights over your creations? Mm, I think it works pretty well for me, I think. Um, just because, you know, in the act of creating something, you already kind of have the copyright, whether or not it's registered right. or not. Correct. So that actually is just great. <laughs> um, and being a photographer, being <laughs> a good automatic... System. Yeah, being a photographer, being an image maker, um, that makes it very easy, that medium, right, to say this is mine, this is not mine, versus, you know, if I made sunglasses or, you know, if I was in fashion, it's a, a bit trickier. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, the range in which you have to kind of claim copyright, I think the is... The utility it's, of the object prevents that. It's you know, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the, the photograph is, itself is is not a useful object. It's an artistic object, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think legally, I feel pretty protected. Um, you know, again, this this situation happened, and you're able to just go in with you know with due process, and the the law backs you up. Um, whether or not anything was signed, I mean, that would help and reinforce it. Yeah. Um, but whether or not anything was signed or um, or really discussed, the law is kind of there for you, and that I really appreciate. Um, if I was a des I mean, and I have designer friends who've had their designs copied by major fashion houses, and, you know, just the legal hurdles to even attempt to have a, some level of retribution or at least a cease and desist or something is something that's just so prohibitive that they just kind of have to let it slide. And the big, big brands know that. Mm -hmm. um, and so in those instances, I think that the law could really, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know what the law could do, but I think that they could make it a little bit easier for um, these levels of, of copying where it's pr like, pretty similar and you can definitely see that they're copying and profiting off of this that they have some kind of, they have some level of recourse some recourse yeah. what do you think about uh, social media shaming in those instances where a brand super important like i mean and this is and this is maybe you know i think it's always i think it's always good to find um who's kind of hacking the system who's who's using whatever technologies they can because that's where I think you're going to find solutions. Just like even when I think about, you know, Dapper Dan um, and what he was doing with Gucci and other brands or when I think about Napster and what they were doing with music streaming, they were really the precursor to Spotify and Apple Music. So they were what they were saying was like, the system isn't working, but we're going to find a way around it. Mm -hmm. to make it work for the people um, because desi all design is predictive, right? People, anyway, we could talk about that. Um, so in the social media shaming, it's kind of uh, this way around law, this way around due process, mm -hmm. which, which can also bite you in the ass, right? Like it's not a perfect system. You have uh -huh. to be sure that in fact the copying really did occur. Yeah. I mean, but like, I mean like accounts like diet Prada, I mean like they yeah. have created a whole industry around calling people out and, and Virgil is one that they love to call out a lot. Um, but, but it also has real legs, right? Social media has real legs. Um, Twitter has real legs, um, you know, to the point of it, was it Dolce & Gabbana? Dolce Gabbana? Yeah, Dolce Gabbana, who, whose show was canceled in China? Yes, yes. Yeah. Over the pizza, pizza gate. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the pizza ads. Wait, or, or no, he was talking about like something about the Chinese consumer and something, 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 and it was in a DM and Diet Prada like posted it and they got, it was, this happened like a couple of months ago. Like, like two weeks ago, no? Or yeah, two and months it, ago. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, like two it, months ago. It wasn't ago. the pizza ad campaign? Oh, I have no idea. But there was well, a show well, they were supposed to have in China that ended up getting canceled. Like the Chinese government just like shut it down. Yeah. There's and been, that came there, from... there, there have been a number of 
missteps by admittedly European brands actually in China over the last couple of months that have led to significant backlashes amongst um, Chinese retailers dropping right. lines. Or even the Dapper Dan thing. Like when I, when I spoke to Dap's team about um, the Gucci show, it was social media. It was social. It was it was it was Twitter, yeah. that that really drove that entire conversation and that whole dialogue. Um, so yeah, I think you know the social media watchers. Um, I'll just say um, play a really important part actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dario, that's a wrap. Okay. Sure. Uh, <laughs> gracias, ah, mi amigo. De nada. De nada. Uh, for coming in for your troubles, a copy of the Laws of Style. Shall be yours. Um, you can highlight your quote. Hey. Um, and get your own copy, uh, <laughs> listeners. Uh, you can search on the ABA website or on Amazon. Just put in the name Douglas Hand, The Laws of Style. It should come up for you. Don't forget to follow me on Hand of the Law on Instagram and Twitter. And Dario, you also have your social media feeds, which are Dario the Photog. Dario the Photog. Wonderful. Twitter and Instagram. All right. Thanks, everybody. Of course. Bye-bye. Ciao. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish. <laughs>